want you to know today that I do consider myself to be a patriot. I always cover my heart. I always stand at attention and sing when I hear the national anthem played. I faithfully vote in every election. I have flown the flag on Memorial Day, the 4th of July, and Veterans Day. I've traveled to Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, to experience the history and see the monuments of our country up close and personal. And one of my favorite movies of all time is The Patriot. And I, I was emotional when I saw that movie for the first time. Now, a patriot is by definition one who loves his country and supports its authority and interests. And patriotism is defined as devotion to the welfare of one's country. And the way I read Scripture, a Christ follower is bound by the Lordship of Christ to be a good citizen of His country wherever that country happens to be in time and space. And so it might be in Rome, Italy in the first century, and it might be in Evansville, Indiana in a democracy in the twenty-first century. Now biblically, biblically, being a good citizen really involves three things. Number one, it involves being obedient to the laws of the land. Number two, paying taxes. Number three, praying for our leaders. It's clearly spoken in Scripture. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, everyone must submit himself to or obey the governing authorities. So that's where obedience to the laws of the land comes in. Romans 13, verse 6 says, this is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe Him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So that's where the paying our taxes comes in. And then praying for our leaders, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, Paul writes to Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved, all people to be saved, and come to a knowledge of the truth. But while I am a patriot, I also believe that nationalism is a sin. It's a respectable sin, but it's nonetheless a sin. Nationalism is elevating our government, elevating our country to the place that we believe as Americans that we are more favored in the eyes of God than other peoples of the world. Nationalism values American history more than biblical history, values the Constitution more than the Bible. Nationalism deifies our elected leaders, marginalizes our Savior. Nationalism makes the focus the state rather than the church. Nationalism puts its hope in the flag rather than in the cross, and in fact, that is actually reflected in the lyrics of a song that is entitled, There She Stands, and it's talking about the stars and stripes. It's talking about the flag. And the words are, when the night seems to say all hope is lost, 
gone away, there she stands. When all your hopes come crashing down, there she stands. Now, folks, listen, make no mistake about it. When all hope is lost, it's gone away. And when your hopes come crashing down, it's the cross of Christ, not the flag of the United States, that the symbol of ultimate hope. And I think Kyle Eidelman got it right in his message at the North American Christian Convention this past summer in Louisville in July. The video quality is a little rough, but the audio is perfect. Listen. And so look, I'll just tell you, I grow weary of churches and of Christians who put their hope in government and by definition make it their God. I grow weary of Christians and churches whose hope seems to rise and fall with every election that comes and goes and every law that is passed or not passed. I grow weary of churches who can pack out a sanctuary for a patriotic night of tribute to our nation, but then they go down to the basement for worship and prayer because only a handful of people can come out for that. We can easily forget where our true hope lies. Before the election this year on November 6th, I got this letter from a guy. It wasn't overly encouraging. But he, he wrote this in, in his notes to me. and. Um, he was talking about the importance of this election on November 6th, and here's what he wrote, and I, I quote here. We have an opportunity to save Christianity and America on November 6th. That is idolatry. We the people, we the people have the power to save America and Christianity on November 6th? Are you, are you, are you kidding? You, you think God needs our votes in order to accomplish his purpose and to advance his kingdom in this world? And we see what he did in Rome. And so we are reminded as a church that we cannot forget our hope is in Jesus alone. Our hope is not in politicians legislating morality. Our hope is in Jesus changing hearts. Our hope is not in the latest poll that is taken. Our hope is in God's Word. As Christians. So there you have it, in a very succinct way. I could perhaps put an amen on that and sit down, and we'd all go home and we'd have the message. The boy did good. Now, in Jesus' day, there were two extreme opposite mindsets when it came to how to relate to the nation of Rome, and it was represented by two parties, the Sadducees and the Zealots. Now the Sadducees believed that to be a true Jew, you had to get on board with the agenda of Rome. And the Zealots believed that to be a true Jew, you had to be committed to the violent overthrow of Rome. Now, both groups had one thing in common. Both were thoroughly nationalistic at heart. Both groups were ruled by nationalistic pride, and Jesus confronted them both when He said in Matthew 22:21, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Can you see it? There are secondary loyalties we owe to our nation. 
But our primary allegiance is to God in heaven. It's not to Rome, it's not to Jerusalem, and it's not Washington, D.C. Nationalism, as we're addressing it today, is basically a secular approach to life. It's failing to give God what is God's. It's fully investing your devotion in this life, in this world, in this nation. The Apostle Paul draws a contrast between worldly citizenship and heavenly citizenship in his letter to the Christians at Philippi. And what we need to know here about Philippi is that the population of this city was mostly retired officers and soldiers in the Roman army. It was mostly military veterans. And Paul writes to these nationalistically prone Romans in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, trying to help them bring their loyalties their allegiance into line with God's revealed Word, he writes, For as we have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. The Apostle Paul knew that many in this city of Philippi particularly needed to qualify their nationalism by becoming sold-out citizens of God's kingdom first. Because listen, being a committed Christian will result in you being a good citizen of your country. But being a good citizen of your country does not make you a committed Christian. You see, there are only two kingdoms, and everybody belongs to one or the other. You're either a citizen of this world or you're a citizen of heaven, the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. If you notice, every verb that I read in this passage from Philippians 3 was a present tense verb. This citizenship is not a future thing. It's not a state or a status which we will attain. We're living in one of these two kingdoms today, right now. Look at Colossians 1.13. For He has rescued us, He has saved us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Today I want us to look at the contrast between this dominion of darkness, this kingdom of this world, and nationalism as a part of this kingdom. I want to contrast that with the kingdom of the Son the kingdom of our Lord. First, the kingdom of this world, verses 18 and 19, Paul shares a truth that is so tragic in his mind that he has broken down. He is weeping as he writes that many, many unbelieving, unsaved, those living for this world, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, 
We're living in a time when it's become a social faux pas, sometimes even ammunition for a lawsuit to offend someone by speaking the truth. Polite society has found a new way to communicate, to avoid any conflict of ideas, a new way of talking called political correctness. And I'm probably going to be in gross violation of political correctness when I say that all non-Christians, no matter how nice they are, no matter how reputable or sophisticated they are, no matter how involved they are with religion or clubs or organizations, no matter how philanthropic, no matter how attractive, no matter how famous, no matter how well-educated, no matter how influential a humanitarian, no matter how well-positioned professionally, no matter how healthy, no matter how connected in the community, no matter how patriotic, all who have not received Jesus, the only begotten, crucified Son of God as their Savior and Lord are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. Someone's going to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I've read the Bible some. I've got nothing against Christians, but church just isn't for me. Others say, I hold Jesus in high regard. I have only the utmost respect for Him. I occasionally pray, and I believe in angels, and I believe that everything happens for a reason, and I'm trying to live a moral life, and I believe we're all going to heaven just taking different paths to get there. But they are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. And listen, friends. The Apostle Paul here in this passage, he's not a member of Westboro Baptist Church. <laughs> he's, not, he's not shouting. He's not condemning. He's not protesting and gloating. He's not arguing and pressuring. He is compassionately stating a truth that has reduced him to tears. He takes no pleasure in this indictment when he says, many are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. He, he gets no pleasure in that. He's weeping about it, and it's the same word that's used to describe Mary of Bethany weeping at the tomb of her brother Lazarus. It's the same word that's used of Mary Magdalene weeping at the tomb of Jesus the morning of the resurrection. We're talking here about deep, racking grief. Paul is weeping for lost people who are living for this life only their only hope is for this life and this nation and this world. But Paul had encountered the risen Lord on the Damascus Road, the living Lord Jesus who changed his life completely from being a persecutor of the church to being a proclaimer of the gospel. How does that happen anyway? He knows these people will be lost unless they change their minds about the place that Jesus will have in their lives. Look at his emotional indictment. He says, first of all, their destiny is destruction. He's saying this through tears. He's writing this through tears. The word for destruction here does not mean annihilation. 
It does not mean that one day they will cease to exist. It means everlasting, perpetual suffering. It begins in this life, will be intensified after death. And it's not the destiny God wants for us, but it's the destiny that many choose. Unless God can use us to change their minds, I'm committed to that. He says their God is their stomach. Instead of keeping their appetites under control, these people surrendered themselves to gluttony and carnality. They indulged every sensual appetite. And we're in a similar place today. I understand that the Travel Channel had two reality TV shows about, about gluttony, about, about this idea of making your God your stomach. One was called Vegas, Battle of the Buffets. One was called Top Ten Eating Contests. And then the Discovery Channel followed suit, and they had a reality TV show called Gutbusters, and it was all about gorging, overeating. And then Fox ran the Glutton Bowl. And it's not just food. Any addiction to alcohol, tobacco products, drugs, sex, shopping, work, video games, gambling. It can even be exercise. We're talking here about people. Their God is their stomach. We're talking about people who consider self-indulgence as an inalienable right to instant gratification with no limits. It's what happens when you run your life from the rib cage down instead of from the shoulders up. Gut-level cravings became their God. Thirdly, Paul says, their glory is in their shame. In other words, they boast about the very things of which they should be ashamed. This is the kingdom of the world. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They not only live shameful lives, they actually, they actually boast about it. Now, this is an area that is totally out of control today in our society, and one of these areas, specific areas, is couples living together before marriage. See, spending a night in the fantasy suite, that is considered now a prelude to a marriage proposal. We've regressed, haven't we? We have. We've regressed from being ashamed of not being a virgin to being ashamed of being a virgin today. Charles Swindoll writes, a great deal of my counseling time is invested in couples planning to get married. It's not uncommon for those I plan to marry to have already been intimately involved. Before we proceed, I have each one promise that from that day on until they're married, they will practice restraint and sexual self-control in their relationship. Here's why. When there has been promiscuity before marriage, after marriage a strange reversal in the couple's roles occurs. The young bride has feelings of disappointment about being violated by her fiancé. She soon becomes dominant and aggressive, taking the role of leadership from her husband because of a mixture of resentment and anger. And the man? He feels guilty disappointed with himself, and ultimately becomes passive. 
She takes charge and hates it, while he backs off and feels miserable, all because their intimate relationship was prematurely set in motion before they married. Of the hundreds of unhappy couples I have counseled who admitted to premarital promiscuity, I can hardly recall an exception to this strange pattern. They, their glory is their shame. And then finally Paul says, their mind is on earthly things. Do you know how easy it is to fall into this, to, to lose touch with the Lord, to lose touch with spiritual life? Today, it's so easy because of our busy schedules and because of technology. The time that people spend in front of televisions today has accelerated greatly because we don't just have three black and white stations, CBS, NBC, ABC. Now we have high-definition, large-screen color TVs with hundreds of channels, and we've got iPads, and we've got iPhones, and those things open up a world of information. I'm not talking about evil here. He's not talking about evil. He says their mind is on earthly things. He's not talking about evil here. He's just talking about stuff that has to do with the here and now, stuff that's captivating, interesting, and time-consuming. It can rivet our minds. Technology can rivet our minds to earthly things. In stark contrast to this preoccupation with the kingdom of this material world, we see in, in contrast the kingdom of heaven. That's in verse 20, verse 21. Paul says, but, that's the pivotal word, but our citizenship is in heaven, Paul declared. And the residents of the city of Philippi, they got this because, after all, they were colonists. Their primary citizenship was back in Rome. Most of them had served their time in the military, 21 years, and they were discharged as free men, and many of them settled in Philippi. And they were nationalistic. They were most proud of their Roman citizenship. And Paul confronts this thinking. As Christians, they had a new homeland now. Paul is saying, just as Roman colonists never forget that they retain Roman citizenship, you must remember that you are now citizens of heaven first, and you must conduct your life in such a way that demonstrates this citizenship. So, we are loyal first to King Jesus. Our voluntary allegiance is to Him. Our heartfelt desire is to honor him. Our lives are joyfully dominated by Him. Our deep passion is to live for Him who died for us, and our lives are governed from heaven now. Our names have been recorded in the Lamb's book of life now, and to heaven our prayers ascend and our hopes aspire." Paul goes on to say, we're eagerly awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as citizens of heaven, we are awaiting a Savior. Citizens of this world are not awaiting a Savior. They are awaiting a judge. And what must it be like anyhow to have to keep pushing back on those dark thoughts about your 
unexpected or impending death, or thoughts about the return of Christ to the earth like a thief in the night, knowing that you are not going to stand before a Savior, but a judge who's going to pronounce on you the very same verdict that you pronounced on Him during your lifetime. So just eagerly describe your anticipation of the Lord's return. If you are in the kingdom of heaven, if you are a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, you eagerly anticipate the Lord's return. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 19, 21. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God, the children of God, that's us, to be revealed. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So we're not waiting on this or that pagan deity. We're not waiting on a Roman emperor or a pot-bellied Eastern guru nor a famous U.S. president or a legendary general nor any mortal from any nation in time and space. The one, the one who will return promised in Revelation 22:21, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he's done. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And when He comes, He's going to transform our lowly bodies so they will be like His glorious body. Now the longer I live, the more I look forward to trading this one in on a new one. The Greeks, the Greeks considered the body a vile prison from which at death the soul would be delivered. That's not what Paul says about our bodies. If we are in the kingdom of heaven, if we are citizens in the kingdom of heaven, Paul describes our body as a holy temple, not as a, a, a vile prison, but a holy temple and a tool. See, as a Christian, the body is a temple from which true worship is offered. As a Christian. Our body is a tool with which we love and serve and witness to others about Christ. And our bodies have been exposed to sin's curse in the form of weakness and suffering and sickness and aging and death. But at His coming, Jesus will refashion it into the likeness of His glorious body. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15.49 says, we will bear the image of the heavenly. It says, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And we wonder, well, how can this be possible? What about those martyrs who were hoarded into the Colosseums and devoured, ingested by lions? What's going to happen to their bodies? What about those who were burned alive or those who after death were cremated? What about the bodies of those utterly dis disintegrated by atomic bombs? Well, we just read it. Jesus, verse 21, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies. The only one who could not be held captive by death, the only one who lives evermore will accomplish it. And I'm sorry to say that some Christians live as though they're second-class citizens of heaven. They think 
they're just barely acceptable to God. They live with the perception that their position before God is kind of a tentative citizenship that they have purchased with their good works, and they will expire at some point if they don't continue to rack up maintenance points. Jesus said that the Christian is born from above. In fact, He said the new birth is the only way, the only way to heaven. Second Corinthians 5.17, Paul said by the Holy Spirit that if anyone is, here it is, in Christ, he or she is a new creature, a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So we share in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in Christian baptism, Romans chapter 6. We die to sin. We die to ourselves. We die to the kingdom of this world, including the respectable sin of nationalism. And we get things in the right order, and we're given a new life, not a makeover, but a made new, not a renovation, but a regeneration. We become a person whose citizenship is in heaven. So if you're ready today to stop actively or passively living as an enemy of the cross, if you're ready today to be rescued from the dominion of darkness, if you're ready today to become more than a mere citizen of the United States of America, if you're ready to become a citizen of heaven, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, added to His church, you come. We'll be right down here to meet you while we stand and worship.